podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Shut up and sit down. Hey guys, I'm Sai and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Here at the channel, you can find podcasts, interviews, content on a variety of subjects, including, but not limited to, mental health, football, films, TV, conspiracy theories, music, and much more. We've done several shows covering mental health, discussing various topics, including ADHD, depression, grief, addiction, with many more to come as we look to raise awareness and break down stigmas, educate people on the different aspects of mental health, as well as um, hopefully helping anyone we can along the way. Uh, We've got shows coming up on DID, bipolar and anxiety disorders, uh, featuring medical experts, as well as people directly affected by these disorders and illnesses. Uh, One of the new series that I've been working on is Mental Health in Sport. Uh, Episode 1 features performance psychologist Tracy Donaghy. Episode episode 2 featured uh, ex-professional footballer Willie Boland. Uh, today is another episode on that uh, in that series, uh, and basically in this series we just try to look at it from all perspectives and discuss the impacts and the pressures on or professional sport has on the mental health of athletes and teams involved. We're trying to speak to ath- former athletes, to medical prof- uh, professionals, journalists, hopefully some current and young and up and coming uh, athletes, just to explore the subject from all all points of view. Uh, with all that being said, I am uh, delighted to welcome back my first ever guest on Ace Podcast Nation, uh, who had previously previously appeared on episode one, which was entitled ADHD and Me. He's a mental health support worker, as well as works closely with footballers by heading the project named Recovery in Sport. Uh, I'm thrilled to have Jacob Kelly back on the show. Hey, buddy, and welcome back. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. Yeah, it seems like ages ago, doesn't it? It was yeah. uh, I then like coming up to fifty shows since. Wow, it's a bit mad. Like yeah. I think this is this is something like number forty or forty-one. So it's been flying by. But you've been there. You've been busy anyway. So uh, obviously, what what have you been up to in the last few months since we last? <laughs> Lack of sleep. So uh, I think last time we spoke, uh, we were my wife's expecting. So we've had a uh, baby boy. Uh, and yeah, everything's going well with the baby and mum and all that. But yeah, it's just a killer. You just, uh, I think it's just a reminder how you quickly forget how difficult the sleep is. And you know, yeah, the first I think week we went through many packs of paracetamol. It just felt like a long hangover, but uh, it's settling now. It's not too bad. So if you hear any crying in the background, uh, it's uh, the baby. Yeah, my kids are pretty much like. My youngest is 10 now, and so it seems like another lifetime ago that uh, we had the babies and stuff. Like, my brother's just had a little baby not long ago. And, uh, yeah, you soon get into the pattern of not sleeping as well, though, I think. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Just adjusts, so it? So I'm saying, like, the first couple of weeks, it's, yeah, it's pretty bad. But now, yeah, your body just gets so used to it. But it's weird because, like, obviously... Before the baby came, you would have had certain sleep patterns. And then obviously with your ADHD as well, you'd have had certain patterns about your day-to-day stuff. Yeah, yeah. And 
the baby comes along and then everything goes out the window and everything changes. But then, like you say, within a week or two, it's as if you've been doing that all the time. Yeah, it's crazy. You can't really have a like you can have a routine with sort of older babies, but yeah, with newborn they just don't. They they just want to do what they want to do, uh, which is fine. I'm happy with that. <laughs> it's what it always makes me laugh when, um, like, if we got like friends or family or whatever who've recently had a kid and they say, "Oh yeah, we'll be there at three and we're just like, "No, you won't." Yeah. Because you know, if you've got like a baby under one, just as you're walking out the door, they'll need a nappy change, or they'll yeah. need a bait, you know, a I bottle, or they need feeding. Stuff. Like stuff we both have like backpack each, prams for the cars for. Uh, yeah, it's just crazy the amount of stuff you have to use and take with you. But uh, it's getting there. I think. I think I'm saying someone like the first year is just a whirlwind, really. So. You don't want to wish away time because it's amazing when you're with them. But uh, first year, once that's over, I think it will settle down a bit more. Yeah, it's a it's a weird one because I always think that people generally they almost do like they don't wish away the time, but it's always they always seem like they're oh I can't wait till they're one mm. and they're doing this or they're potty trained or they're going to sleep yeah. on their own or they're. You know, they're on they're not breastfeeding anymore or you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. And if I just especially now my kids are older, I whenever anyone I speak to anyone's got a baby, I just say enjoy all the little yeah, things little like this. Enjoy waking up at three o'clock in the morning and like clutching your baby and just yeah. sort of, because it goes so quick. Well then like my oldest now, she's two and a half and I she just don't like cuddles. Like where like we were saying like a year ago, happy she would love cuddle and all that. But like now she's like, nope, I'm a bit independent now. Don't need that. So show, you know, and that's only two and a half years. So you have got to embrace it and take it when it comes, really. Yeah, my oldest is uh, coming up to fifteen, doing his GCSEs, and uh, barely wants to speak to me half times. <laughs> is what it is, I suppose. Okay, <clears throat> so. <clears throat> Uh, this series is on a obvious podcast series, which is specifically focused on mental health within sport, the pressures on professional athletes. Uh, on, you know, it can be on a daily basis, whether that be the pressure to be the best, the media limelight pressure, the injury, like injuries, or personal life and other pressures, which can have an effect, you know, on their 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 job as it is. Um, it's certainly, like I know, people say footballers they get paid thousands of pounds a week what have they got to be depressed about but like and that's a surprisingly common comment that you'll see on you know social media and stuff like that but like you know you've got to let, let's be clear mental health illness depression whatever it may be it does not discriminate and it doesn't matter if you are rich poor white black whatever it doesn't matter female male it just does not matter uh it can hit you at any time, even when things are going well. Um, so let's delve into it a bit. So um, obviously, when we did a podcast before, you were sort of on the brink of starting uh, a new type of project, but it wasn't underway. So, like, tell me, tell us, tell us about your work and your project that you're involved in at the moment. So, I suppose my day-to-day job. I work in a NHS mental health. 
uh, community mental health team. So daily I'll be visiting people at their homes, supporting them with their recovery, it could be preventing them to go into hospital. It could be sometimes hospital is the only option. Uh, so I do that sort of crisis work as well as doing stuff like I support them into getting into work. I could be working with employers if they've taken some time off work. So I'll do some education with employers. It could be stuff I run like activity groups. So a lot of the people we work with, a lot of the stuff they struggle with is anxiety. So the, getting them out there, meeting other people that might have struggled with similar things is really powerful. So this week we did uh, Banksy Art Trail. So I took a group of I think it's four or five of them out around Bristol and getting some exercise, talking and all that. And like those sort of things, that's my sort of my experience and all my expertise has always been in running groups. Uh, so it's always something I've done throughout my career working in mental health. And then before that, I used to do um, promotion in clubs. So I've always been a bit of a promoter and either that's in mental health or in clubs or pubs and all that. Um, and so how I get, you know, I, I loved sport, I loved football, but I was never, you know, I had a team, but I never thought, you know, five years ago, that is where I would want to end my career. I always thought it'd be in just general NHS. And then um, what happened, our locality, similar to like postcode areas, our sort of locality didn't fund any sports for mental health. Uh, and so we are young lads that wanted to do football, couldn't go to the the Bristol, which is, you know, probably three miles down the road, their group because of their postcode. Um, and after about a year, I was like, look, this is not good enough. Uh, so let's set up a little group for our little caseloads. So we had about four or five lads come in and it was good. And I was like, you know, I love a kickabout. I, you know, four or five is great, but you can't really, you know, we wanted it bigger. So we just said, you know, Traditionally, a mental health group in teams, they'll run their group for their caseload, and that'll be it. And what we did, we said, look, let's just open it up to anyone in or out of mental health services. Doesn't matter if you struggle with mental health or you don't. Uh, if you want to come play football, meet nice people, uh, build your well-being, this is the place for you. Uh, so we set up this group, got some initial funding at first. Uh, we linked up with our local uh, professional football team there, the Community Trust. So we linked up with them. Um, and then just started the ball rolling and my view for things have always been, I think I've always been like a working class boy. I've always said, you know, I've always wanted, especially as a parent now, I'm noticing it more like there's loads of great events for kids, but they're all really expensive and what events, you know, advertise, what are targeted for people that maybe don't have that much money. There's not many events, a lot of events now for kids are quite expensive and so I was like, you know, I want it. I want anyone to be able to come, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you've got no money, we all help you out. So the group's free, we're able to give people free football boots. Um, we've got a scheme where if they like coming but they struggle with transport, we'll, put, we'll pay to that they go on a course where they build a bicycle and then they can cycle to the group. So that they, we pay for all that, they get a free bike and log. That's how I got into sort of just sports. And then I thought, you know, my experience in working in drug and alcohol, where a lot of people share their experiences and are really helpful for new sort of members of 12-step uh, groups. I thought, you know, we don't really have that in mental health at that, at that time, that 
people, especially sports people, were openly talking. So I wanted to have something slightly different about the group other than just being a normal football group. So that was inviting footballers or coaches with lived experience of mental health to come, run the session, then follow it by a Q&A where we would ask general questions about mental health. And uh, since doing that, I think that started getting my head sort of thinking and being around professional footballers more. Because before, I'd never been around a professional footballer mm. and seen that sort of side of football. Because in your head, you'll be like, oh, it's great. It's really glamorous. You know, I was really excited. And it is exciting. Being around a professional footballer is exciting. But I think you quickly learn, actually, it's not all that is. You know, there's some amazing bits about being a professional footballer. Um, but there's some really difficult bits. And there's bits that they have to sacrifice. And even, you know, even not even professional footballers, semi-pro players have to deal with quite a lot of stress. And I think if I didn't, especially because I work with a lot of employers with our normal caseload. If I said, you know, some of the situations I was hearing from professional players or coaches, some of the stuff that they've been through, I was like, in any other job, it just wouldn't happen. Why is this behaviour acceptable uh, in football that these players, you know, I get it, like we said earlier, that they get paid a lot of money. But some of the stuff they have to put up with, you know, I would rather not have the money. Uh, and so once we started meeting players, we had a few players come and we had chats with them. And then uh, from working with our local community trust, we met more players and uh, got a couple of the players to then join us uh, a little bit more. And uh, yeah, having those chats, we did a mental health evening where... Uh, yeah, I'll talk about the story after in a minute. But uh, yeah, just meeting them, I was like, right, there's some work to be done here because there's, there's clearly a lack of talking about mental health, a lack of support, a lack of knowledge. Um, and it's getting better now. But I, I think that's it's something that I, I was really keen on to do more if that's in my work life or if it's in my personal life. Yeah, it's... Um... Do you know, I think I like I played sort of football to a decent level till about 16. But I trained a lot with older kids and kids who were in academies. And we had those academy coaches. And back then, so you're talking like the early 90s, mid 90s, the, the, the way the coaches would treat and interact with teenage kids if I talk, I'm not going to tell you the stories, but like, it's frightening. Yeah, yeah. And like, I just think that these young men are taught almost to to not speak about their feelings and not or their emotions and their their mental health. They're, it's almost like they're trained to keep it to themselves and just get on with it, sort of thing. And um, <clears throat> I do think that like stuff like you're doing is. You know, it's obviously it's the it's the way forward. Yeah. Um, were you were you met with like some reluctance? I think from... at first, I think um, I think our like we so our first for me the turning point was we did a mental health evening. So I knew for our my case, load of people that were struggling, the football group would always do well, and get getting the players persuading players to come and openly talk about their mental health 
it's been a little bit difficult. But I think um, most players where, so there's some players that are quite open, that have, that have gone out and pressed and said they've struggled, so they're quite easy. But then players that haven't got, haven't reported any mental health difficulty, they'll go, oh, I can't really talk about that in the Q&A. And then you talk to them about things like, you know, how did you feel when you got released from that club? And then they'll go, oh, yeah, well, I, felt, I felt a bit low and I, you know, I wasn't leaving the house. I was like, do you a little bit depressed? Oh, well, yeah, I suppose so. Or like, you know, they'll talk about it. And I go, you know, that is mental health. It might, you might not need medication, but it's well-being, you know. And I think everyone uh, is on that line of well-being. Some people will struggle, you know, a lot that they'll need maybe support and help. And some people, they're still on that continuum of needing support. So I think... That and then I think the turning point was we did this mental health evening where we had uh, two ex pros, two current pros, me, uh, the manager of the community trust, and I think that was it on sort of like a uh, on a table answering questions. In the beginning, we did like uh, I think we did like Q and A and all the questions we had planned most of the questions with a compare. And we talked about mental health and then we did. A quiz on mental health for the fans. All the fans came. We expected probably 40 people. I think we got just just under 200 fans. And I think what the you know I knew I knew one of the players. Sorry, mate. My plug's in the kitchen, mate. Yeah, it's fine. Sorry, Jacob. My phone. I just realised my phone is about to die. Uh, So I was trying to negotiate my son to get my plug. Uh, Sorry, like, go on, carry on. Um, I was I listening. Knew, I, was I just... knew one of the players had spoken in an interview about his mental health. The other two didn't know anything about them, really. And uh, so I thought, I was a bit like, oh, is this going to go well? And all the players were pretty open. You know, one player talked about his uh, struggles with addiction, with gambling. Um, mm. One of the ex-players, uh, who's a pretty big legend at the club, had scored the winning goal to get him promoted. Uh and he's now a coach at the club. He talked about actually how retirement was a big thing for him. You know, going from a professional player to now a retired player uh, was a massive thing. And he, he was really amazing. He was really brave. And he's like, you know, I'm really struggling now, if I'm honest. You know, I've got a great job. So he's he's uh, coaching. And he said, you know, most people think, oh, what has he got to moan about? He's a professional player now. He's a professional coach. But he was like, you know, I, I can't watch the boys play. You know, it's a massive, you know, for, for me, he said my family would come and watch me every week and now they don't. You know, and, that, you know, I've seen uh, something, a few players do interviews recently, you know, he said, you know, it was, that was their life for 10 years and then stop. You know, that was their day trip for their kids every Saturday and then now it's completely different. So I think after that event, you know, I spoke to a lot of fans and I can't believe he talked about that. I can't believe he's struggling with that and all the players... You know, the manager from the community trust was very open about his experiences. And uh, we did an exercise at the end where they said, you know, if you've been involved in mental health, if that's for yourself or a family member, stand up. And uh, I'd say 90% of the room stood up. And uh, everyone was like, you know, or I think it's a family member and friend. And actually, then you, you see it visually. Actually, it does affect everyone. If that's a family member, a friend a colleague, whatever, and I think that, for me, was the turning point then, and then we got the evidence from that uh, evening to then go, look, 
the more stuff we're doing, the actually easier it is to contact players. And, and that got us sort of in the door with especially the two pros that had done the event. Uh, they knew us then, so it was easy for us to chat to them. Uh, the ex-pros, I think it just got us in the door that event, really. Yeah, it's... Um, I think once with footballers, like I've spoken to a few now, um, you know, and one of them was my absolute like hero. Um, so to hear him sort of talk about some of the issues that you know footballers can have, and like I spoke to Willie Boland, who you know he got myself and my wife together um, really? all those years, all those years ago, which is a great story for you know for a Cardiff fan, um, but. He discussed like the difficulties that he had upon retiring, and I think that's a you know you see obviously you see the big names like Merson and Gaza and the people who are still struggling today. Um, but to hear like I think they there's, there's lots of aspects to it upon retirement. Obviously, it's a short career. They they're used to that day to day camaraderie of being you know with their friends and playing football every day. And it's a big, big difference. Um, so before we move on, like we will cover retirement a bit more in detail in a bit. Um, but just sticking with your sort of your work and your project at the moment. Um, what sort of things have you got planned going forward, like in place at the moment? So the plan, the football group will continue. And I think that helps the local community, the bread, you know, that's our bread and butter. And I think what, our plan is sort of this year, we just had a meeting today about doing a similar event, what we did, um, I can't go wet too much because they told me not to, but uh, yeah. a similar event that we're doing, we did last year to raise awareness about mental health, but uh, it will be more of an education sort of evening for maybe <laughs> professionals, is it, I can say professionals. Um, uh, so it will be more of an education evening. Uh, maybe, and it's not going to be really for the fans. It's going to be for professionals maybe working with players. Um, that's probably as much as I can say. Um, but yeah, so that. But long-term goal, you know, I think there is, especially with my sort of NHS head-on, I think, you know, I would love, you know, long-term to I know, set up some sort of charity or some sort of organisation that works with professional clubs uh, to offer mental health support and education to their coaches, players. But also, we we're talking about giving mental health support to the players. So when they're injured, they're not just left to you know rehab uh, in a different environment from the team. They meet with you know a support worker once a month or once every other week, whatever they need, just to have a supervision, checking with them, what's going on, how are you keeping yourself safe? Because you know injury is a massive, massive hit to a lot of people's careers. Um, but also offering that to academies, you know, saying, you know, because I was saying this as a parent, I think if my son was in the academy and the choice was out of A or B, both exactly the same sort of club, same sort of wages, but one offers mental health support. So if your son does get dropped or released, uh, you know, there's a care team that will see him three times just to talk about a plan. And for the clubs, I imagine most uh Owners would go, well, what's the point? We drop them, they're gone. You know, why should we spend money? I think it's about, you've got to think it long-term and think, are parents going to be more likely to send their kids to a, a, a team that 
offers them that support. I think most parents probably would. Um, so yeah, it's getting my foot more in the door. We, we want to work with more players. I have a little team of sort of, there's about three of us, one that can offer sort of uh, cognitive behavioural therapy to sort of them, uh, to players to work on those sort of things. And CBT, I imagine, would be amazing for professional footballers. I bet, you know, I, I can see their minds sort of working really well with it. Also offering families education or family support to the families because if your husband's, you know, out every day, probably eight till three, and then he gets an injury and he's at home for seven months, that's going to put pressure on the relationship. Uh, but also, if he's just being released and you've got your mortgage to pay, there's going to put pressure on the relationship. So doing more sort of what I do now, uh, you know, the dream job would be what I do now, but for, for, for professional athletes um, or professional footballers would be brilliant. So that's a long-term aim. Uh, but more sort of education, you know, we have to take it slow. So more education for players doing stuff like this. I think uh, having more open conversations with coaches that's uh, something I'm really keen on because I think the players are actually quite open to this about mental health more now I think it's about talking about how the coaches and management team can support their players how a club now needs to step in yeah and I think like you say in many ways and um, I think uh, not, not just with your work but overall educating coaches not just in football in other sports I think that's vital to sort of taking that next step yeah. in making sure that all players, young, you know, in, during their career and when they retire, have that sort of aftercare, if you like, of making sure that they've, you know, they've got the tools to be able to... And I think our uh, generation are more open about talking about, you know, I'm not being ageist, but I think our generation are more talk about talking open about talking about their emotions, how they're feeling. Uh, but... You know, I, I'm aware that the older generation are still quite, they struggle with more about talking about that. So it's definitely talking about mental health. And uh, and that's not all what people over sort of 40 or 50. Uh, but there is a lot of uh, managers and coaches I hear about that are of that age that are very like, nah, we didn't have mental health back in my day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, those are the ones that need sort of targeting, but also educating the young ones to go, right, this isn't right. This is how you support your players. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I um, you mentioned CBT there, so um, for people who are not aware that CBT is a cognitive behaviour therapy, um, and I've actually been having some myself for my own anxiety, um, and I I think I got like one session left, um, but I I agree. I think that for footballers and the way they need to think and the way the things they have to deal with and things like pressure and mm media limelight whatever it may be i think that that could be really beneficial um so what um what would you say are like some of the most common reasons that you might hear uh, a player sort of struggling or having some sort of mental health issues so a lot i've spoke to you know more recently you know i think it's and I've read you know, a few articles that have come out this week about players talking about injuries. Injuries is a big one, but also, you know, not getting your contract. So not, especially this time of the year, a lot of players out of contract. Um, and it's how you release a player. If you just drop them, if they've been dropped from the first team squad, 
in January and they're not they know they're going to be dropped or you know there's a few articles I've read about players you know they've been there thinking they're going to stay there they just get dropped and it's not you know I, I some people are like yeah but the footballers but I explain it to them I say imagine if your boss come up to you and said right next week you're not here no more you you need to get a new job uh and it's not like uh you could just apply for the next place next door there's only sort of two employers in this city and the other one won't have you so you're gonna have to move to a different city uh and that's probably about two hours drive from your kids so your routine now has changed that you need to get a job very quickly to pay your mortgage and you need to get a job probably about two hours an hour of drive from your house so that's going to affect your relationship seeing your kids seeing your wife and that's going to put pressure on your relationship if you said that to most people working their jobs they'd be like nah i wouldn't have that no mm. way you know and that's what footballers like you know i've met a lot of players recently that have you know been released and they've just had to get jobs with teams that two hours drive they now have to work out you know do they have to now buy rent a flat in this city stay there after the week and then come home uh, which then means you don't see your family after the week uh so the pressure is massive and, and that's just like getting released that's just one topic you know getting an injury you know the pressure on you know if a club's bought you for a certain amount of money you bought me i've just got injured i read something about um i watched a documentary actually last night about jack wiltshire and uh sort of six minute documentary talking about injuries and well-being and stuff like that and he talks about when he had quite a bad injury at arsenal he actually came home from i think uh rehab uh on his knee i think it was and uh his son was having a fit he said that wasn't reported in in the news and it, it or in the press none of the fans knew about that but for i think for a couple of months his son had regular fits and uh he said yeah, that's going to affect he said i had to stay up all night just to make sure my son didn't fit because he mainly fit at night so that you know we're talking about the stresses of having a newborn baby imagine that as well as then a high really high pressure job where people are it's very open that they can tweet you and go your shit uh you're oh, yeah. injured um and so that's you know two topics there you've got being released and injured probably i'd say for me i'd say that these are the biggest ones i hear about um, or the man being out of favour of the manager, and uh, you know those two what topics. If you if you say it out in normal terms, you can see how it's going to really affect someone's well-being. Look, Jack Wiltshire, he's injured, he's not in work. So being out of work, your routine that's going to affect your well-being. Lack of sleep that's going to affect your well-being. Uh, it's going to start to affect how you process things. The guilt of you know not not being the man of house, some people have those results, not not providing for their family. Um, then the extra pressure of, you know, now people think I'm injured. All those things, when we explain it as, I think I didn't know if I did it in the last part about the stress bucket. So we also have my glass here. So everyone has a stress bucket. So mine could be a quite big one, yours could be quite a small one. And uh, every time we get stressed, we fill that glass up with stress. So it could be being released, a bit of stress. Um, wife having a go, you bit of stress, lack of sleep, all these things. And if you and there's a, imagine you've got a little valve at the bottom, and you turn that, and that's relieving the stress. So for me, 
seeing my family relieves that stress so it brings the stress levels down or having a bath like something simple that can relieve their stress so the water's going down if you don't relieve those things by seeing family or doing things that you find that water fills up falls up and then it overflows and that's normally how we explain someone having a breakdown or becoming unwell and so you can see how it's very you know in the high pressure job in football how I'm surprised. I, I think it probably has happened more than it's been reported. You know, with the there's a few like big Premier League players that are, Aaron Lennon went into hospital. I think last year. I think there's more, but I think maybe not so much to go into hospital. But the base, you know, general mental health is in anxiety and depression. I think there's a lot of players day to day that are dealing that are struggling with it. Um, but it's just not being reported, or they're not able to speak to their managers because there's no mental health support in their club you know i think premier league they've probably got it anything championship maybe any thing down from the championship have no mental health support in there you know please correct me if i'm wrong but i haven't heard of any league one league two uh teams that offer mental health support for their players and it no no and it's crazy so, really. You think, you think of most employers now, we work with loads of employers in my work, uh, Tesco, all the big employers, everyone's now talking about well-being. Uh, lack of, you know, poor well-being costs the economy a lot of money uh, from people coming to work and not uh, being able to do their job 100%. So I don't know why they're not having this chat in football. Uh, I know Premier League, you know, for the money they've got, especially in, I know there's not money in League 2, but yeah, if you've got money to hire analysis men and all that and spend 140 grand on turf, I'm sure, you know, just getting a counsellor in, you know. Yeah. I've, I've, I've spoke to my local club and I said, you know, I'd be willing to, as a trial, offer uh, support to some of the players for free just to trial it, just to get my foot in the door. Um, mm. And that hasn't been taken up yet, so. Yeah. I, do you know, you were saying about the media. I do feel like the media contribute massively to uh, the players' feeling or potential feelings of like anxiety or depression. Mm. Where they so often we see these clickbaity headlines which yeah. imply one thing about a player's form or his attitude or his personal life. Half the time, it's either not true or the headline completely is different to what's in the article. But people see it. And then I just, you can see how that could easily build these, these stories build up. Yeah. And then it's like you say, like a pressure cooker of just that constant feeling of, of like stress. And then you go into work and then that stress is making the form not very good. Because I think, you're just I think overstressed. Swallows, it's very quick. Everyone forgets they've got families. And, yeah. you know, look at most of our friends and our, you know, all our couple friends and all that, you know, we'll have friends that their relationships end. We'll have friends in our circle that they have, mis you know, their, their family, they try for a baby, they have miscarriages. You have one uh, friends that their kids might be really ill. They might be struggling with their own mental health, the kids. And that's just, you know, us as gen general people. These professional players have all that. But they don't, mm. they're not given the sympathy of it because they're like, oh, you're getting paid loads of money. Um, so when someone's not performing on the on the pitch, they're like, oh, they're shit. Instead of thinking, 
And I know it's never going to change. Yeah, I'd love to think it's changed. I'd love to think that fans are going to go, oh, I wonder if he's getting, like, having a nice time at home if his missus in, given like something's not going on with his home life. So, okay. Um, yes, man. Yeah. Uh, if you hear some weird noises, we're just making a baby bottle. Uh, That's right. Nice. But, um, yeah, so I can, you know, fans struggle with that sort of uh, thing. This is a professional player, player, but you've got to understand they've got a family. So if they're not performing, it's not just, oh, they're shit, and that's why they're not performing. It could have a thought. I wonder if everything's right at home. I, I know it's quite hard for fans to think that because as a fan, you sort of feel like you've got ownership of these players. There are players until they leave, and it is a weird dynamic to think of that. Um, but just maybe even if you could just have that one thought or, you know, this player's played well for five years or four years and this season they're struggling a bit. Why is that? Is it because they're shit or rubbish? Uh, or is it because their, you know, their family, you know, we're, we didn't even talk about bereavement. So no. them could have a family member who's passed away um, and understanding in our normal jobs for as normal people that aren't professional footballers, if our dad passes away, we're probably, you know, one of the, someone I work with, she had uh, six months off when one of her family members passed away. And that's fine. She was lucky she had that support that she need, you know, she needed six months off work to deal with, you know, all that stuff. If a professional player footballer said, right, my dad's passed away, you normally hear like, oh, the club have given him the weekend off or something yeah. like that. I've never heard of longer than sort of a month. I don't think I've ever heard of a month. Uh, and so just, you know, just understand actually these are people, however much they get paid, mental health affects everyone. And yeah. life, even if it's not mental health, life affects people. So, uh, yeah, just bear that in mind, really. Couldn't have put it better myself. And, you know, on top of all those different aspects, they've also got the pressure of just the pressure from their coaches to to perform in training and the pressure to win games and um, an interesting aspect aspect that when I spoke to Willie Bowling brought up is that when he came to Cardiff he had like about a, his first season he was struggling for form a bit um, and he he felt like after losing a game or having a bad performance if he wanted to go out with his missus or something for a drink or go out with his friends and Card Centre, he didn't feel like he could do that because he thought, oh, if the you know the, the South Wales Echo take a picture of him and he's out after they've lost, they're going to paint it as he's got a bad attitude, yeah. or he might run into fans who will be like, oh, you were shit today, yeah. why are you out? Why are you out drinking? Whereas that you know he's just like any normal person, he's got not game or he's not working the next day. So he's going out yeah. with his family. family. Like, yeah, I don't do it so much now. I've got kids, but like in the old days, when I had a bad day at work, but like, right, let's have a pint at the pub. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so in the city I live in, there's two teams. It's a very big rivalry. I don't really get the rivalry. You know, I'm not... The team I support isn't a big one in the city. The community trust that works with me, I suppose I'm more of a fan of them. But... Uh, some of the, there's one player who's played for both teams and I was like, oh, I'd love to have him. He's, he's been great at both clubs 
and a few people were like, don't, you know, you can't have him. And I was like, why? And it's more like the risk to the player. Yeah. Uh, said if he was to come back to his old club and do an event, even if it was for people struggling with mental health, the amount of abuse you'd get off fans. Oh, I can imagine. You know, uh, he's left our club to go to the Traitor Club, and now he's coming back. Uh, you know, there's only one. There's one guy. He, he won a professional footballer. He was an actor, local actor, and he's a massive. Uh, I won't say the team's names, but uh, he was a massive red team. Uh, and our event is sort of supported by a blue team. And uh, he, I said to him, look, you're you're an actor. You've talked about your lived experience of mental health. Don't really care if you're a red or a blue. I want you to come to the event. He's a massive football fan. And he's the same as me. He is a huge red fan. Uh, and he said, I will get stick for this, but mental health is more important than if you're blue or blue or red. And I completely agree. I said, you know, I don't want you to get stick. And he did get a bit of stick even from some of our lads. But mm. uh, fair play to him. He came along and uh, he actually, the funny story is he came along, full red kit. He's an actor, man. He's not a professional footballer. Full red kit, everything, brand new. And uh, a friend of his is uh, the kit man for the red team. And he, once he found out he was coming to a blue event, he kitted him out. All red mm. kit, everything. But I said, you know, that's, what was fun, that's the fun bit of it. I said, yeah. I don't mind a bit of banter, but I think there's a line where players are getting abused and they can't, you know, if a player can't do a mental health event, helping people that struggle with mental health because they're going to get abused for it, what what sort of, what are we sort of doing with our country? Like, what, yeah. everything, you know, what's going on? I, d- I don't get it. But I get, on the other side, Football is a massive thing that some people are very passionate about. And for me, I need to, I know my view isn't as strong as some people, but some people, there's a guy I work with who's, uh, he's a massive red and he cannot wear the uniform of the blue, you know, I wear the blue coaching kit and uh, he can't wear it. He said, I can't, I just can't physically put it on. And I, at first I thought that's ridiculous. Uh, but for him, it's like a religion. It's like, uh, me asking him to put a burqa on if he's if he's a certain different religion or me asking him to you know change his views on or politics i someone said to me it's like me asking if he's a really strict labor supporter and then me asking him to go to a conservative rally or wear conservative bags um so i get you know there are fans that are diehard fans that for them that is you know that player massively disrespected the club and all that but I think it's important for us to take a step back and go these are human beings and yeah of course you know have a bit of sense and go right let's you know because I would love to do an event with both teams of the city uh, but I'm aware that that wouldn't some some areas of the fans would really not appreciate that and we talked about doing a mental health event and some fans were really were quite open to that and then some fans have said, you know, if you get two both sides together, there might be a fight. You know, I don't know if that would actually happen, but I think if if we're even having that conversation, you know, what fans going at it at a mental health event? What's that? What are we doing? So, two things I would say. First of all, I wouldn't wear a Swansea City cap. 
Yeah. If you if you paid me, I thought you were a of... fan now. <laughs> Piss off. So I wouldn't wear the kit for Swan. I wouldn't wear Swansea's kit. Full stop. However, say who can I think of? I'm trying to think of like a Swansea player who I ex- dislike incredibly. I know Lee Trundle. Okay, say he came and he was doing like a mental health talk in Cardiff. I would encourage it and speak to him and I'd want to do anything I could to help her because I just think like, and I think I gotta be honest, like you see when there's like, um, like tragedies or things that happen within football. Yeah. The the core football fans will always come together regardless of team and stuff. You know, you're going to, you maybe you get like a few idiots here and there, but like, I generally think that most people would see it as, you know, Mental health bigger, yeah, than, yeah. and than that's that. what we're trying to do because I think, you know, I've been to a few games. Yeah, you know, I used to go to games loads as younger, but uh, I went to one recently, and one of the players that we're doing a lot of work with, uh, just you know, he's helps out massively. Uh, so he was playing, and he's, uh, you know, big. A lot of team uh, fans love this player, so I was like, oh, yeah. shouting his name. And uh, five minutes in, he miskicks the ball. Straight away, the fans are on his back. You're you fucking brave. Mm. And I think because I knew him personally, and I'd been to a game in a while, I was like, what's going on here? And uh, a friend of mine stood next to me, who goes to a lot of lot of games, uh, he was like, yeah, that's what it's like. And I said, yeah, but they love him, don't they? And they were like, yeah, but they're just off. That's what all fans are like. They're on, on them all the time. And I said, no. And I spoke to the player after. I said, "What do you think to that? Like, you know, they'll be singing your name, and then if you mess up, they'll be calling you everything. But then they say they love you after." He said, "You know, honestly, at the beginning when he was youth, he used to take it on board. But now, his sort of brain sort of just developed this sort of. He just doesn't even process it now. He doesn't even like listen to it." Um, but it must be hard because I think, you know, like we're saying, in your day-to-day job, if your boss was, if you're walking around the office, then people go, every time you mess up, everyone's on your back straight away. You know, it must be really difficult. It's, it's, like you say, if you did, if your day-to-day job, you had someone just telling you, oh, oh you're doing crap today. Yeah, yeah. Constantly, it would get you. Yeah, so yeah. I wanted to circle back to something which you mentioned, I think it was right at the start, about semi-professional players. Yeah. So one of the interesting aspects, which I think with the semi-professional players, is a lot of them train and play for their club. But they've also got like a nine-to-five job. Yeah. Or, you know, like a, they work on a building site or they work in an office or whatever it may be. So they're in a, they're doing two jobs as well as playing football in the hope that, you know, a lot of them are hoping that they'll get that sort of full-time contract. Yeah. But again, though that extra sort of that can have an extra strain and extra Absolutely. pressure. And we work, you know, we work with our one of our local semi-pro teams. And since working with them, I think I think some of their, you know, some of the fans have been, you know, once the club said, "Oh, we're working with the NHS mental health trust," I think the fans have been more like, "Oh, I struggle with my mental health," and a bit more open. But um, I'm planning to to build my sort of experience as well. I'm going to do my coaching badge, I think, this year. 
but I'm going to spend a couple of sessions at the coaching sessions for the next season with the team. Hopefully, I'm going to try and keep my mouth shut, but you know me, I like to talk, but I think mm-hmm. just listen to how they deal with the players. Um, I'd love to go to like support the coaching staff. Like, I've spoke to the manager, so he's a good friend of me, and if I didn't have a baby, I'd love to be on the coach, even like volunteer, just to sort of see what they're doing to get that experience of being around. But I've spoken to a few semi-pro players, and yeah, they've got this, the stress of a full-time job. It's funny, actually, we've spoken to a lot of young semi-pro players that are looking, you know, there's a lot of older ones that know they're not going to get that contract, but it's more just for the bit of extra money. They love football. But it's the young ones that probably could can go on to professional, they're playing for their professional team. Um chatting to some of them, you know, it's very different their experience to then chatting to the older ones about what it was like when they were younger. That you sort of said about some of the stuff that these older coaches used to say, probably nineties, two thousands to these young players. One one of my uh friends is who's very good uh manager now, semi protein. He was saying when he was a young player, like the stuff that the manager, you know, if you were dropped that week, they wouldn't say, right, unfortunately we're not going to pick you this week because we're going for a more defensive player. They're like, you're, you're a drop, mate. You're not even coming with us. Mm-hmm. I've heard stories of players being dropped off, like not being told not you're not even getting on the bus. Um, and these aren't adults. These are kids. Like, if yeah. we did this to a kid, they would be uproar. So why are we letting our coaches do it to our young players? Uh, and I think as a parent, when you hand your son or daughter over to a, a football team or a cricket team, whatever, you expect them to be looked after like they would in any other sort of social group or whatever. Like but uh, here are some of the stories. I know there's loads of stuff gone out about abuse, but just, you know, with sexual abuse, but even just like emotional abuse, the stuff that these, these young players, especially at semi-pro, I think I've seen it with, um, oh, what was it, the... Salford City, uh, when they did their documentary about Salford, uh, the class of 96, starting up, and now obviously they're in League Two, I think. But uh, the first episode of the series, they had these two managers that were mouthy. And I, as a, as a fan and viewer, I was like, probably before I knew as much as I do now, I was like, oh, it's quite entertaining. Yeah. But if your family's watching that TV show and they're seeing some old man going, you fucking shit, you are that, and all your family, it's embarrassing. But also, I think, what is he going to, how is that going to make him play anymore? Like, I think the day of the hairdryer like, treatment is gone. If you look yeah. at the most successful manager, uh, but most successful for player well-being, look at Jurgen Klopp. His players love him. What is, what is he doing that other managers aren't? I think his players, the players he's got, there's some amazing world-class players, but there's players like, I mean, funny, James Milner, I don't think he's a world-class player, but he's managed to get the best out of James Milner uh, and Henderson that, you know, if we were saying five years ago, Henderson and James Milner would be playing in the last two um, Champions League finals, you'd be like, nah. So what is he doing that is very is different. I think what he does is he loves his players like family, but also he appreciates them, and he's putting that arm around them. And, and I think that is not all managers will do that, but I think that's having an openness to say you can struggle. You you know, I imagine if I was a Liverpool player and I was struggling personally with 
home life or a family had passed away, I think you'd be a pretty good manager to support me. Uh, and so why is, you know, what is that model he's doing? And why are managers, it's clearly successful because players want to play for him. If you look at the end of the Champions League game, uh, all the players, even since, the players like um, Chikiri was, uh, there's a rumour about him leaving. He was like, no, why would I leave? You know, they've been the last two. But also, I feel like I'm really looked after here. Uh, the staff looked after. So it's about, yeah, I think, I think that's the way to go, to be honest. I think in, in 30 years' time, I think, I'd like to think that they just sing and have these dinosaur managers and coaches around. I think if you look at coaches like, so I got to work with a coach called Ben Ghana. Uh, not many people will know him, but he's, his story is pretty, you know, if you look at his credentials, unbelievable. Um, how he hasn't got a first team management job uh, in, in the sort of, in the leagues, I don't know. I think it's because he doesn't have that experience professionally as a professional player. But he's, you know, he's worked with people like um, Mourinho. He's worked in the Premier League with Crystal Palace and West Brom. But his way of thinking is very good. His way of coaching is unbelievable. And he's, you know, he did some work where he talked about, you know, he was a professional player, quite young, wasn't, you know, great. But he was in his living, uh, and I don't know if he could have made pro, but uh, he got injured, and then he spiralled after that. You know, things went downhill, and then coaching and football got him back out of that. And I think this is, you know, how many how many managers you know that would be that open to talk about that? Not many. I think he's he's someone I would love to see get a good job somewhere. And I think once he gets his job in the English league, you'll see. Play, more managers like that coming out because his craft is unbelievable. Uh, I know he was his, I think it was his, I don't know if he went to Middlesbrough last couple of seasons ago, but he's worked with some amazing managers and uh, a lot of the players uh, that have worked with him, uh, you know, they've all come out. And if you Google Ben Ghana, there'll be a lot of stories of players talking about how great he is. Yeah, and I think. It's interesting that you say that because I was speaking to some um, children's football coaches about a month ago and um, I was speaking to them about the, the change in direction of how coaching was 10, 15 years ago and how they are with kids and very much, particularly at academy level for young kids now, there seems to be a better understanding of every kid's got a different personality, every kid responds differently. different things some have got adhd some haven't some you know have got anxiety even at a young age they worry about things they need a bit more you know encouragement whatever it may be and i think as an adult if you've got a team in an office or a team on a football pitch that's what you would do if you're the manager or the team leader you understand that everybody is different and some some players will react better to the hair dryer treatment and others. Me personally, as a staff member, my boss come up to me, start shouting at me. I, I wouldn't really. It wouldn't. That's not what I want. I want my manager to back me. And if I've done something wrong, pull me aside. If I've done something good, tell me. But then let me do my job. But also, I want you know the manager I've got now is amazing. She she gets she sees she knows about my ADHD and she uses me for what I'm good at. 
well, I'm not good at. She doesn't use me that much for her. But mm-hmm. also, she protects me. She looks after me. She's yeah. a family man. And uh, she'll do my, like, with maternity leave and maternity leave and all that. She's been amazing with my ADHD. She's been amazing, I think. Um, and I'm very different to, say, someone, a lot of the other people in the office. So she's very good at going, right, this is what I need to do with Jacob. This is what I need to do with this person. And tailoring it. And I think it's the same for management, like you were saying. Each player will have a different style and a very different personality. And a good manager, good coach can see that and get the best out of the players. The ones that struggle, the ones that want to, it's not moulding their form, but moulding their beliefs. I I think you can can mould your beliefs on like this is how the style of football general personal beliefs are not going to change you know i'm not going to change my view on politics if, if someone tells me to i'm not going to change my views on is that right or wrong if someone if a manager tells me to uh so our core beliefs you just can't change that you know those are that's what makes us who we are yeah and i think like if you look at the way um Mourinho was at man united mm. he was in the press criticizing people like Luke Shaw, you know, yeah. really, really cutting criticism, not like, oh, he's out of form, but I know he'll come good. Yeah, really yeah. cutting quite nasty stuff. And it, this undercurrent of sort of negativity was developing in the public eye. And you can only imagine some of those, you know, some of those players are like 19, 20. Yeah, they must have been thinking, you know, I know he's got this big long list of trophies won, but I mean, they wouldn't be human if they yeah. weren't feeling yeah. down and, like, and depressed and anxious and struggling with that atmosphere. If Luke Shaw, Luke Shaw went to the board and went, right, I feel like I'm being bullied in the workplace, they'd be like, I do all, mate. Where, like, in a yeah. normal job, like we're saying again. I know football is not a normal job to say, but they are human beings, and we need to understand that. Doesn't matter what job you do, we have to treat people with respect. And I think, you know, if my boss was then slagging me off to uh, not, you know, there's no way even it's not just slagging you off to your colleagues. It's slagging you off to the community, the community mm. you live in, saying Jacob's rubbish at his job, telling all your neighbours because that's what Mourinho was doing, doing it so publicly that everyone knew. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Have to go home. His wife—it's not just his neighbours. It's his wife, you know, his wife's friends, his kids. His, I don't know. He's got kids, but his kids' friends. Oh, my dad says you're all rubbish and all that. Like, it's, yeah, it's like never ending, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's murder. So go. Um, I want just to finish off, and I want to go back to the like retiring players. Obviously, there's been some like high-profile stuff with Gaza again recently, um, and we. In my show with Andy Campbell, um, he's from the same part of England, like northeast. He's from Middlesbrough, and Gaza's from Newcastle. But like, he played with him when he was a youngster, and he sort of described, you know, what he was like, like a lovely guy, and he would help you, and he was funny. But like, he was quite upset because he had put a tweet out saying, you know, someone please, you know, reach out to him, try and help Gaza. And people were like, oh, no, he's he's had enough chances. He's, he doesn't want help. And it's like, and Andy Campbell said, like he said, and I agreed, is that it's never too late until it's too late. 
and let's not get to the point where it's too late. Yeah, so, like, and what we're saying as a, as a generation, uh, as a country, as a community, that, right, let's give up on them. Let's just give up on people. They've had enough. And I know, it's, you know, this, you know, drug, drug and alcohol abuse is, you know, it's not, for families, it is a killer. It is, you know, it is really difficult. Uh, and I've worked with many families that have been affected by drugs and alcohol. Uh, and it's really difficult. But you've always got, you know, especially in our, my job, we always got to hold hope. There's people that uh, will always cancel appointments with me. And if I was to go, nah, that's it. They've had their chance. Uh, I wouldn't be doing my job right. And our job is to hold hope. So I think it's about doing that as a community and going, right. You know, what saying about retired players, if, you know, I, I always say, oh, I'd love to retire at 30, 35. Mm. That actually, uh, the, you know, the idea of it is nice, but actual, you know, that you, you cannot do your job at, say, 39 or 40. What? Something that you've spent all your life doing, what are you now going to do? Because if you're, you know, Premier League, yeah, I could maybe go into, you know, entertainment, TV, and all that. If you're a championship below, how much? I can't imagine many Sky, BT Sport are going to want, you know, are going to go, oh, do we know that guy who played in League Two for, for five seasons? I've never heard of him. Um, and those are the players, you know, League One and Two, those are the players that retire. You know, what are they doing? Like, and what support is out there? Uh, and that's a massive, you know, it's just, like you said, you don't have a job that you're regularly going up to, and you're 40 years old, and you go, well, I've got another six, potentially another 40 years left in me. What am I going to do? You know, what am I going to do for the next 40 years? Uh, and that's a massive, you know, and also some of these lads might not have paid off their mortgage. You would hope they would, but some of them might not have. Um, and so I was going to say, um, so that when I spoke to uh, Tracy, the performance psychologist, um, she felt that one of the things that they really need to bring in for young players, like those players, as soon as they're made professional, then they are, they're getting effectively you know, in most, a lot of cases in the Premier League, a year's wage for a normal person in a yeah. week. Yeah. They need to be having some sort of support which teaches them how to budget, pay right. bills, and put money away. Because yeah. these kids, they come out of school, they play, fo- play football, play football, then suddenly they've just got loads of money. Yeah. They've always lived at home. They've never been you know, paying bills and mortgages and putting away money for when they retire. So she felt that that was a really important thing. So my last question for you is going to be, um, what sorts of things can the FA, PFA, football clubs put in place to help players when they retire? However, before you say what you think, I'm going to just say some of the things that I think would be a good idea. So... I think that I think that coaching badges in when you get to say thirty should be compulsory, just to give them something to focus on mm. as they're winding down their career. And then it's an option if they want to do it; they don't have to do it. It's something which can keep them busy, um, keep them involved in the game. Um, I also think that giving the clubs should give the players 
um, like media training, get prepare them so they can go into like punditry or TV presenting, but also maybe help them get some bookings on Match of the Day or BBC Radio or TalkSport or whatever, and actually help them get a foot in the door from that front. Because if you've got players who were, you know, they might be quite shy, and if they haven't got the contacts at TalkSport or BBC to to get those opportunities, then they, I know they've got agents and things like that, but I feel like that's a good way that they can find something straight away when they retire, something which they're comfortable with, something which they can, you know, they can really get stuck into. Also, um, helping them if they want to do some education, a degree or something, you know, encourage those sorts of things. So when they finish, they've got, you know, something to focus on and something to help them not feel like their world's ended because they haven't got that day-to-day football anymore. Obviously, encourage, encourage them to work, whether it's helping in the communities they grew up in, because obviously, you know, a lot of footballers come from quite working class or poor communities. Um, so, like, doing stuff within those communities to improve, uh, you know, improve conditions for young kids there, opening academies, or helping people like yourself with, like, mental health and helping mm-hmm. educate younger players. I feel like the clubs could really do... put If they had those things in place... It's a good start. So, okay. And and the other thing was the thing about the budget, like helping them manage their money yeah, when yeah. they're 18, 19, 20, when they get their first proper contract and they go from, like, the apprenticeship money to the, you know, to the money. And, I mean, even in, like, League One, you know, a really good League One player can earn, like, a £1,000 a week, which, mm. you know, I know that's not Premier League money, but that's still... Four grand, four grand a month, and if they're just blowing it by going out with their mates and you know whatever it may be, showing off because they're you know they're with their mates and they got a lot, lot of money. Yeah, it could they can easily spend four grand in a month. Yeah, and then if they get a bad injury, their career is over at twenty-two, and they haven't got any of that four grand a month to to fall back on. Um, yeah. So go on. Is that I think. Some of the, so I've met with a few young professional players, and some pretty switched on from sort of 18, 19. They're looking at what am I going to do at the end of my career? So, some they put their money into housing, renting, and like buying properties. But they're getting that what are you going to do if you, what are you going to do if you retire at 35? What are you going to do if you get an injury and you, you have to retire at 21? having a plan. So as soon as you get into a professional contract, there is a plan that all clubs have some sort of, you know, we had it at school, like a employment person that says, what do you want it to be when you're growing up? But maybe someone that goes in and goes, right, what are you guys doing with your, do, do you have a savings? You, what are you doing? Like a financial advisor, but mm-hmm. not just finances. They're talking about what is your plan? You know, yeah. if you want to go coaching, you need to start doing your badges now. If you want to go into TV, you need to start doing a media training now. Um, so someone in the club, embedded in the club, or in the PFA, I don't know if they have that, but uh, something that player, player, any player from any league can go to. It's not just Premier League or League. Yeah, or yeah. That would be good, I think. Um, having, having mental health support, I, I read something about uh, the PFA there 
they're expecting their the support they give to players this year to double or treble in the numbers uh, that they had in the previous year. So I think the figure for the whole of 2018 was 438 players that they had helped, uh, and that had risen 160 uh, from 2016. So having more mental health support in the clubs, I know some PFA are looking at it, but more embedded in the clubs for retired players, for current players, for when, you know, when they retire, actually someone keep an eye on them and going, you know, you're right, what's, you know, like this player I was saying about earlier, I don't know if he had anyone from the club sort of saying, checking in with him or the PFA. I, I imagine they weren't, but um, other than his family. So I think the support when you retire, it's got to be around their well-being. Are they looked after? But also putting things in place, of what are you going to do with the rest of your career? Is it going to be... You know, there's only enough jobs in TV, so is it going to be property? Is it going to be education? Is it going to be a, a seeing one player from League Two who's just set up his own mental health wellbeing college? You know, what is it that, what's your passion? If someone said to me today, right, you're sacked, we're going to give you, or you're going to be sacked in 10 years, what other job do you want? You know, I'd start thinking about that now, right. I'm all right at landscape gardening, maybe I'll have to set up a business for that, you know. Because if I have to, you know, a lot of these lads, they might have to pay their mortgage off. So I'm going to have to get some money in somehow to start having that conversation really early and just have an open conversation about it. Um, but then, so yeah, having the conversation, the extra support around budgeting, what you're going to do when you retire, if, is that now, if that's now or in 10 years' time, and having ongoing support for the players that are, you know, for when they do retire, you know, someone's checking in with them. Yeah, I like the idea of um, of the young players being taught uh, right. What are you going to do if you you know if you have a cruciate knee injury next week yeah. or next year, and you can never play football again? Have you put money aside? Have you got a plan? Yeah. It's almost like that that encourage them to carry on. Ed, you know, go into education. Yeah, so yeah. Like they're nine, they're nineteen. They might be playing first team football in the championship or whatever. They're getting good money, but they could go and do, you know, a degree or go to university part-time, just something. So then if that worst comes to worst and they get a bad injury, they don't feel like their world's just imploded. Yeah. Um, And like you say, if they're embedded in the club, and I think one thing I do think is if clubs have got a counsellor or a mental health support worker or even, you know, like a reverend or a chaplain yeah. or whatever just someone where the players can go but they need to know that it's not like a tattletale to the manager yeah yeah, yeah. it needs exactly. to be like a you know like and that's it's... What i've always said about the mental health team. you know if we because i always thought that like if we had that in you know our local club would the players feel comfortable to talk about it and i think saying right this our conversation saying that we have it at our work supervision yeah, stays you and me. It's a private yeah. conversation, um, and I know there'll be, you know, if there's any uh, professional footballers listening to this, they might go, clubs ain't going to pay for that. They got no money. They can't even pay, like pay for a brand new stadium. Yeah, club. Some clubs will not be able to pay for a full time mental health support worker, but clubs can contact all the local organisations. There's loads of mental health organisations within every city. There'll be a mental health organisation or charity. If you said to them, 
would you be able to offer education to Arthur Club for free? I imagine all of them would say yes. If you spoke to a finance, a financial advising company and said, right, does your company want to be the, the sponsored finance, uh, financial advisors for you know, our local team, it's great marketing for you. All you have to do is offer financial advice to our players for free. Most financial advisors will take that. You know, if the brand of their team is big enough, they'll take it. So, yeah, I've blagged loads of free stuff uh, over the years using contact. If clubs have literally got no money, there's loads, you know, there's, especially with mental health, there's loads of staff that are willing to offer their time for free or support uh, in any way they can because they will like helping people, you know. So if you've got no money, use partnerships, make these partnerships, these connections, you know. Yeah, I think it's just being open and going, you know, I seen one football club, they sent something out on their Twitter, or we've linked with this dental practice. Well, they've linked with that, so they probably sent that tweet out, great advertisement for the practice, and they're getting a discount for that. So why are they not doing it with a mental health organisation? Spot on, mate. And that's it, isn't it? If these clubs contacted local mental health charities and trusts, yeah. 99.9% of them would be willing to send someone. Yeah, even if it's just for a one-off. Yeah, I'm for sure a trial it. period or once every couple of weeks, you know, yeah. it's, it's a bit frustrating from that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, mate, obviously mental health is a tricky subject. Um, and I do feel like as a nation and people, world, whatever you want to call it, we are moving in the right direction when it comes to mental health. Um, and mental health within sporting community as well, but they, you know, there's still plenty to do, um, and there's, you know, you do hear still some horror stories of the way people have been treated or the way people have been feeling, um, and like I said to you before, I really do hope that this, you know, discussing these issues on podcasts, having guests like yourself on, who are doing like tremendous work to improve things, we can get more people on board with the stuff that you're doing. And I've always said with the mental health shows, it's like if one person watches one of my shows and thinks, oh, I'm going to go and talk to someone, then I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. Because definitely. I know what it's like to be like at the bottom of a bottle and yeah, feel yeah. like I don't want to go on. Yeah. So, like we were saying about this poor show, you know, if anyone thinks, that's a good idea, or that's a rubbish idea, or I want more information on that. Tweet me, tweet me at ADHD Father UK. I'm always happy to chat with people. I've spoke to people on the phone sometimes. You know, I remember uh, my mum saying to me, "Here's a number of this guy struggling with ADHD. Can you just talk to him about what you found out for?" And if I can, I will. Uh, if someone, if there's a footballer that goes, actually, I love the idea of your project. I want to help out get in contact with us but I think it's just about getting that conversation going and being open and going you know the reason I work in mental health is because I you know I struggle with my ADHD a family member of mine had mental health difficulties and I think that was the that was for me it was personal but I think now I'm I'm involved in it it's about helping out my local community and you know the people I work with and the people I I want the best for the community and if that's helping people that's what I want to do really Excellent. I'll um, I'll 
drop all the links to Jacob's projects and websites and Twitter page, everything. I'll put them on the screen at the end, but I'll also drop them in the description for the video. Um, obviously, you just gave your Twitter uh, handle. Is there any other links or Twitter accounts you want to tell the people about? Um, I think we spoke. There's. Uh, I think it's just looking. You know, if your PF, if the PFA you feel is not doing enough, you know, and you're a professional player and you want support for your own mental health, you know, there's loads of charities in cities and stuff like that in your city. If you don't know, Google it. If you want to help out your local community and you're a professional footballer or you're just a fan, you know, each uh, club in the football league will have a community trust. You can get involved with your community trust there. They do a lot of great work. Uh, or speak to, you know, your mental health provider or your charity if you want to help out. You know, the project we run is not funded by the NHS at all. All the money we get from it is from grants that we have to apply for. Uh, our team have not, you know, we are, we're having a next activity group as a picnic. The staff are having to pay for the food for that out of their own money because there's no money in the NHS to do that. So the only way we can get away with not doing that is fundraising. Uh, so yeah, there's loads of things you can get get involved with. You know, if wherever you live in England, there's loads of mental health projects that you can help out with. We've got one guy who volunteers every week, coaches with us. So yeah, get involved and uh, help. Absolutely. So lastly, I would just like to finish off by saying um, to anyone who's might be struggling, um, just please take it day by day. Don't give up. Reach out to someone. Anyone, you can talk to me. I, my DMs are open always, yeah, and I'm happy, to, I'm happy to talk, and I know Jacob is as well. Um, and speaking about it is half the battle. Mm. That first, when you've, when you've bottled, bottled something up for a long period of time and things are getting on top of you, that first conversation about, oh, I'm struggling, I think I need help, or I need to talk about it, or whatever you know, that first step is, is a huge weight off your shoulders, and that is really is half the battle. Um, okay, so yeah, you can find Jacob at ADHD Father UK. Yeah. Um, you can find us uh, at Twitter is uh, at AceCast underscore Nation. You can find us on Facebook.com AceCast Nation. Um, check out the video formats of all our shows on YouTube. And audio formats, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all those sites. Join our growing community on social media. And uh, thank you again, Jacob, for coming on. I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks, and, uh, it's been good to catch up and chat again. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Shut up and sit down. Podcast Network.